Our scripture reading today comes from 1 Samuel 25, verses 1 through 13. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich, and he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, and go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, I'm Tom, and uh, welcome to the Leeward campus. Uh, we are, again, always glad you're here. We hope you sense Jesus' presence here with us. In the annals of modern history... The name Bertha Van Sutner probably is not the first name that comes to your mind. But she lived a remarkable life and left a vast peacemaking legacy. She burst onto the scene in 1889 with her widely acclaimed novel. It was entitled Lay Down Your Arms. Lay Down Your Arms captured the horror of war, modern war, and she called for the greater need for peacemaking efforts in the modern world. Her extraordinary intellect, her unwavering efforts, were actually recognized in her time, so much so that Bertha Van Suntner became the first woman to receive the Nobel Peace Prize. This is stunning. And Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Jesus is right. Peacemakers are indeed blessed. But let me say, throughout the annals of history, they are often overlooked. This is not only true in modern history, this is painfully true in biblical history. Such a remarkable woman is the woman 
Abigail. And if you were to ask me, throughout the entire Old Testament, Abigail gets my vote for the Nobel Peace Prize of the Old Testament. Now this morning we are continuing our series through our campuses called Our Forgotten Family. It's a message series where we are exploring some hidden figures of biblical history. Remarkable men and women of faith that have so much to teach us in the 21st century, but are so easily forgotten. So what does it take to be a peacemaker? Abigail's story, perhaps more than any story in the Old Testament, helps us to answer that crucial question. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel, chapter 25. Now, before examining this remarkable woman's life and her peacemaking legacy, I want us to set the literary and cultural scene. The book of 1 Samuel is actually an action-packed story. It tells the riveting story of David's rise to be the king of Israel. And imagine this, from chapters 18 to the end of chapter 30, that's 12 entire chapters, if my math is right, David is like the innocent Dr. Kimball. You remember that? One of my favorite movies. Played by Harrison Ford in the movie The Fugitive, right? Harrison Ford, if you've seen this movie, is relentlessly pursued by U.S. Marshal played by Tommy Lee Jones. And more than once, Harrison Ford is narrowly escaping his tenacious grasp. And I want you to keep that in mind as we enter this text. But here in 1 Samuel... Of course, instead of running from the law, David is literally running for his life. There is a demented king named Saul who is truly hell-bent on killing David. Yet in chapter 24, and then in chapter 26, notice the context, David has the strategic opportunity to take Saul's life, but he doesn't. Why? Because David recognizes Saul is God's appointed king. Now, tucked neatly and strategically between these two chapters, these two close encounters of David and Saul, is chapter 25. Chapter 25 is arranged around three characters that we are going to see. There is a future king, that's David, A foolish man, Nabal, who actually is, if you notice, the alter ego of Saul, by intention and by structure, and most importantly in this chapter, a wise woman named Abigail. Now, in the opening verses of chapter 25, we immediately encounter the author's intention to shine in front of us the glaring contrast between Nabal and Abigail which will serve to shadow the entire chapter and the events in our story. So let's look at verses 2 and 3 again. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Mahon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. And now the name of the man was Nabal, and his, the name of his wife was Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. 
He was a Calebite. Now, as you enter this story, notice the riveting contrast that the writer of 1 Samuel wants us to see and to feel. Abigail is discerning. Another translation that I think is better is intelligent. She's intelligent and beautiful. But her husband, whose name in Hebrew, this is going to be more important in the story, means fool or drunkard in some cases, is described as harsh and badly behaved. Another translation actually, I think, captures the Hebrew better. Describes Nabal as surly and evil in his dealings. As the story now unfolds, y'all, the literary spotlight zooms in on a woman, on Abigail and her remarkable peacemaking efforts. And I want us, as we look at this story, to see three character, tra- uh, character traits of a peacemaker. And it flows in this order. Courage, wisdom, and faith. Courage, wisdom, and faith. First, as our story begins, we see Abigail's courage to act decisively. It is shearing time, and most of us are probably not agrarian or Bedouin in our backgrounds. So let me unpack that a little bit. Shearing time for Nabal's large, large flocks of sheep, which means in the community, a time of feasting and celebration. Think with me Thanksgiving Day, okay? That's the picture. In the Bedouin Middle Eastern world, David and his men have been acting as a protecting force from all kinds of marauders, right? It's like the cyber criminals of today or pirates. They were all around looking for opportunity to steal. And and so they are acting as a kind of Middle Eastern insurance policy for the safety and well-being of Nabal's sheep. Keep that in mind. So David sends a group of his men to Nabal to wish Nabal a warm greeting. In fact, the warmth of it is repeated, shalom, 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 right? But it is clear to everyone and to the original reader that David's men are there at this particular time, not only to offer peace and goodwill, but yes, to collect payment for the services they have provided Nabal for the entire season. Now, what is shocking to the Hebrew reader or the original reader is Nabal's response, which violates every cultural norm of hospitality, every thread of decency, every ounce of respect. Nabal's response is best described to me, in my mind, as a moronic, self-absorbed oath. He is contemptuous. He basically says, you'll see this literally here, who is David? And if I paraphrase what he says next, I would paraphrase it in modern vernacular. I'm not going to give you a blasted dime. Now get out of here and never come back. Nabal clearly knows who David is, actually. And notice the writer says, he, Nabal, is a Calebite, which means in biblical history, that he is related to David, at least in a distant way, which even makes Nabal's contemptuous response even more unthinkable in the Middle Eastern world. Here's the idea. It is as if Nabal is spitting in David's face. So David's men hightail it out of there. You would too, right? He's a nasty dude. And they tell David what happened. And notice David's response in verse 13. This is this classic. And David said to his men, every man strap on your sword. 
And every man strapped on his sword. You bet. David also strapped on his sword, right? David went in and on the action. And notice, about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. Now, in our 21st century context, David's response seems over the top, doesn't it? A kind of militant response. It seems so severe to us in the 21st century. But it was not deemed severe at all in its cultural context. David is greatly insulted. He's treated with contempt by Nabal. David is responding in what would be culturally expected and acceptable. It reminds me a little bit of the musical Hamilton. Just brilliant, right? Lin-Manuel's work. It's a masterpiece. But there's a difficult moment for us, I think, in the 21st century to even begin to fathom that Alexander Hamilton is killed in a duel with Aaron Burr. Right? You go, what? I mean, to us, dueling is barbaric. It seems over the top. It seems so utterly senseless. To us in our time and cultural context, as we read David's response, it strikes a similar visceral chord, doesn't it? David is amped up with anger, but he's culturally reinforced. He is eventually rounding up his troops to wipe out Nabal and all his men, and he's very crude in the original Hebrew. I won't share that with you. He's after Nabal. But notice what happens. While he's amped up with anger, Nabal has a servant, not named, that comes to Abigail and describes what has just taken place. And you'll notice in the text, the servant verbalizes what everyone, everyone knows about Nabal. And the servant says, Nabal is a worthless or brutish man. And notice, who can't, you can't even have a conversation with. It is painfully obvious to everyone that Nabal has a well-deserved reputation and it's not pretty. So notice the text. The text begins to capture the hurried and haste nature of Abigail's response. She flies into action. Notice the text. She quickly picks up a large store of goods, what Nabal should have already given to David as a courtesy, as a payment, as a tip. And she rushes to intercept David, who is strapped for battle. Now, notice the text says in the story, Abigail doesn't tell Nabal. You wouldn't either, let me tell you. Culturally, it would have been unthinkable to do that, right? To take this kind of initiative and to be seen as downright scandalous, to have some kind of a clandestine meeting with one of her husband's enemies, quote-unquote. But Abigail takes the risk. The writer wants us to know that Abigail's courage is off the charts. But it is not just her courage that the story focuses on. It is the second characteristic of peacemakers. And that is, notice her wisdom. Her wisdom to seek peace. This is the primary focus of this text. As our story continues, Abigail's characteristic emerges. It's on display. When Abigail encounters David, she humbly and respectfully bows before him in a gesture of respect. Notice in the story, she doesn't try to spin or justify what the fool Nabal has done. Instead, she takes personal responsibility for the offense 
And then she asked permission as David's servant to speak. And then she describes her husband and situation in verse 25. And it's marvelously said. She says, let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal, for as his name, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young man of my Lord whom you sent. Abigail simply says to David, David, you know and I know and the whole community knows you're dealing with a fool. And in the text, there is a hint of disarming humor in a very volatile situation. She says, David, after all, his name, his name says it all. And she's basically saying, David, if I'd have known your man had come, I would have intervened. I'm so terribly sorry. But notice where she goes. But God has protected you from shedding blood, from doing something you will regret and will later haunt you in the future. David, you don't have to take this in your hands. Yahweh, God has this. God has this. Abigail's wisdom and de-escalating this highly volatile situation is brilliant and beautiful. And the writer of 1 Samuel wants us to camp out in it. Notice, Abigail's name in Hebrew means my father's joy, or a father's joy. She is named well in our story by intention. And Abigail displays joy and humility and gentleness and respect. Notice, in the stories, you read it more and comprehend it, she takes personal responsibility. She chooses her words carefully. She seeks forgiveness. She offers tangible ways to make up for the offense. She appeals over and over again to the sovereignty of God that overshadows the utter folly and foolishness of her stupid husband. And notice, in the story, Abigail's respect, her posture, her humble actions, her well-chosen words are a model a timeless model and a timely model for us to emulate in our time. The hurtful words, the demonization, the canceling of others often carried out today in very public places on social media, emails, text trails, is dividing our culture further. And in many instances, I fear, hindering our Christian witness in our time. Now, while David is deeply insulted by Nabal's actions, he is, I think more pressing for us in our daily life is not how we respond to insults. Oh, that happens. But how we as followers of Jesus disagree agreeably with fellow workers, family members, spouses, neighbors, or even fellow church members who differ with us on political matters, on economic matters, on ethical matters. I believe all of us need greater wisdom in peace-seeking, y'all, and more practice in peacemaking. How do we grow as apprentices of Jesus in being peacemakers, both within the church and the broader culture? The big question, maybe the most compelling question of our time, it affects each of us, young and old, is how do we disagree agreeably? And I want to suggest three characteristics that are crucial here that Abigail models 
and be very practical in its message to our life. First, you will notice through Abigail these three characteristics. First, she's very respectful. Be respectful of others. As followers of Jesus who believe the Bible, a bedrock truth of Holy Scripture, bedrock is that every human life is sacred and has value. Every human being we encounter in our daily lives, everyone you encounter this week at work, in your neighborhood, at school, no matter their worldviews, their lifestyle, their religious views, or political views, are fellow image bearers of God. That means, biblically, even if we don't agree with their ideas, even if we don't really emotionally like them at times, or what they stand for, or what they have done, we are always to treat them with respect because of the God who made them. It was C.S. Lewis who reminded us that our neighbor is the most holy reality presented to our senses apart from the holy sacrament of communion. And he's right. In a time of such growing polarization and pluralization and deepening mistrust among each other, how we live with our very fundamental differences, and they are fundamental, and interact with others is incredibly important to God and to our world. John Anazu, who is a friend and a follower of Jesus, also a wonderful law professor at Washington University in St. Louis, wrote a couple years ago a really important book I commend to you. It's called Confident Pluralism, Surviving and Thriving Through Deep Differences. And Anazu calls us as Christians and the broader culture of people of goodwill to model tolerance, humility, and patience. Here's what he writes. We will continue to struggle with those whose views we regard as irrational, immoral, or even dangerous. We are stuck with the good, the bad, and ugly of pluralism. Yet confident pluralism remains possible in both law and society. And then he quotes Harvard Law School Dean Martha Minow. I don't know her worldview, but she's a person of goodwill. And she writes, whether through a principal commitment to tolerate others or a pragmatic commitment to survive, we who live in plural worlds must exhibit enough mutual respect at least to coexist. While there are real and fundamental differences in our culture, and many who preach tolerance are actually the most intolerant, and many who decry hate are actually the most hateful, I get that, followers of Jesus must lead the way in being respectful toward others. As Christians in our conversation, our Facebook posts, right? Our Twitter accounts, our Instagram, our social media posts, as well as our blogs, are we setting the example of respectful cultural civility? Or are we tearing down straw men and demonizing and disrespecting others who disagree with us? First characteristic that's vital to disagree agreeably is to be respectful of others. Secondly, to listen humbly. We see this in Abigail's life. As followers of Jesus, we embrace both common grace and knowledge limitation. What that means is that every image bearer gets part of the story right. It also means that none of us have perfect clarity. The Apostle Paul reminds us, don't forget, that we now look through a mirror dimly. That means this side of the new heavens and new earth, none of us have all knowledge 
or can see all aspects with perfect clarity. None of us has absolute certainty because absolute certainty requires an infinite vantage point. Only God has that. Now, this does not mean that we cannot truly know things with great confidence. We can. We know the God of truth must be firmly tethered to the Scriptures. We must be discerning of deception. We must avoid cultural accommodation. And we, we must be unwilling to appease evil. But we also need to stay curious and remain teachable that we can learn from anyone. Think with me for a moment. How would our conversations change? If instead of thinking, how can I prove that person wrong, our posture would first be, what can I learn from that person? What part of the story may they be getting right that I'm missing? Think how that would change our cultural conversations. How it would change our conversation with other Christians who disagree with us on matters. Recently, I had a conversation with my longtime friend, Pastor Stan Archie. Stan Archie serves, as you know, our sister church in the urban core. And we were having lunch together and chatting and lamenting and crying out to God of the deep division in the church and culture around race. And he said to me, I thought it was so insightful, he said, what a difference it would make if we truly just shut up and listen to each other, to our heart and to our history. We just listen to each other. And James chapter 1, verses 19 through 20 reminds us of this, doesn't it? James writes, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. James's wise words are to be a distinguishing mark of every apprentice of Jesus in all walks of life and in all conversations of the day. That is, at home, in our marriages, in our friendships, with our children, grandchildren, at school, at work, and in our friendships. That is to be a distinguishing mark of a follower of Jesus. And what I find is when I truly listen to others humbly, you guys, even if I strongly and viscerally disagree with them on a matter, I find they are much more willing to listen to what I have to say. How do we disagree agreeably? One, Abigail reminds us, be respectful. Secondly, listen carefully. And third, speak gently. Speak gently. The tone of our conversations matter, friends. It's not just what we say, but how we say what we say. Abigail, Abigail models this so beautifully in her interaction with David. It's just beautiful in the Hebrew text. And she models the wise words of Proverbs 15.1, which I commend you to memorize and hold it around your heart, especially in our time. What does Proverbs 15.1 say? A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Eugene Peterson puts it this way, a gentle response diffuses anger, but a sharp tongue kindles a temper fire. One of the greatest ways to de-escalate tensions in our relationships with others, to build bridges in the midst of so much difference, is to model the fruit of the spirit of gentleness and self-control. We must learn to cultivate the habit of responding thoughtfully rather than reacting impulsively. Proverbs 17, 27 says this, whoever restrains his words has knowledge, but he who has a cool spirit is a person of understanding. That's Abigail. 
We are called to speak the truth in love. Don't misunderstand me. But we are also called to be wise, to frame that truth in gentle language, love, and respect. This is being lost in the church today. Think of the difference if our conversations went something like this. I guess I see it a bit different than you, rather than saying in an incredulous way, how on earth could anyone believe that? Paul writing to the local church at Ephesus speaks of a gospel-shaped Christian lip style. In Ephesians 4.29, we read these words, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the moment that it may give grace to those who hear Three questions we should ask before we write an email, before we text, before we tweet, before we post to a social media account. Are my words edifying? Are my words necessary? And are my words gracious? If we would do what the scripture calls us to do, our witness would be much more enticing and compelling as Jesus' followers. So how do we navigate the many very real, fundamental, and difficult differences in our cultural context. How do we disagree agreeably with others? This text reminds us, through Abigail's life and legacy, be respectful, listen carefully, and speak gently. These are essentials for any apprentice of Jesus, and they're compelling in our moment now, friends. Abigail is a remarkable human being. She has the courage to act decisively. She has the wisdom to seek peace and notice where the text goes, the story she has the faith to see beyond the present. To encourage David to embrace peace and forgiveness rather than vengeance, Abigail helps David put the present painful moment in proper perspective in light of the future. Through the eyes of faith, Abigail affirms David and his future destiny as king. Look with me at verses 30 and 31. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt with my Lord, then remember your servant. Abigail saw a bigger picture of what God was doing in the world. Her eyes of faith and spiritual insight are stunning here. And yes, our story has a good ending. As we read this story, as it unfolds, David, the future king, listens to Abigail. In fact, the text says he obeys her. He respects her, obeys her, and her wisdom and authority. He blesses her, and he does not retaliate against Nabob. And as readers, we take a deep breath, don't we? Because we wonder, what would have happened if Abigail had not intervened? What would have happened? The senseless bloodshed, the cycles of vengeance that went unfolded, the lasting mark on David and his future reign. And as 1 Samuel 25 tells us, God does intervene in his time. Nabal the fool dies. And Abigail the wise woman becomes David's wife. Over this story is a New Testament text a midrash, a commentary. Romans chapter 12. Paul writes, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. 
Paul says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. We are called to be peacemakers. God is the righteous and just one who settles the score. And the ending of our story here in 1 Samuel 25 is not the end. It anticipates the future Davidic king, the Messiah, the ultimate peacemaker, not merely a Nobel Peace Prize winner, but the Prince of Peace, Emmanuel, God with us. The one who shed blood on the cross has made it possible for us to have true peace, yes, with God and with others. In that upper room, the night before his crucifixion, Jesus gives all his apprentices these words of gospel comfort. Jesus says, I have said these things that you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, has come. He has died, he has risen, he has ascended to heaven, he will come again. And the Prince of Peace will settle every score and he will set the world right. No wonder brilliant Jesus reminded us, blessed, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Let's pray.